1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, this is David Rothkoff, the host of Deep State Radio. I am in our third sub-basement studio here at the Ministry of SNARK. Uh... Joining you for another episode of the Deep State Radio with Rosa Brooks, who is also with us here in the studio. Corey Shockey, who is in Stanford or somewhere in Palo Alto or on the beach. In a bar. I think she's in a bar. Possibly in a bar. We're never really fully sure with Corey.
0: In a bar on the beach. Uh, Yeah. Right.
1: Uh, Well, and we wish... That's why, folks, she's smarter than all the rest of us. Uh, and also uh, Nick Burns, former Under Secretary of State for policy, career, diplomat extraordinaire, uh, somebody who is on everybody's short list to someday end up as U.S. Secretary of State and uh, who teaches at the Kennedy School at Harvard. We seem to have an obligation to always have somebody on here who's at the Kennedy School at Harvard um and i don't know what that is um but it really ballast it ba- wow stanford well you know nick you were at stanford Frank for a Corey. year right and and they just forget right they totally how quickly
2: forget. they forget yeah. exactly
1: really, he uh,
0: abandoned us for harvard yeah. that's the resentment
1: yeah get over it Um, In any event, um, Nick, I I wanted to turn to you and talk about a subject that's relevant. We've had the president traveling around Asia. Uh, He has been uh, dealing with a host of extraordinarily complex issues, the North Korea nuclear issue, regional and global trade issues, the rise of uh, China, uh, our, our security and our political relations in the region. Uh, and yet he has been deliberately doing this with at least one arm tied behind his back uh, because, as was announced shortly before he left, uh, the gutting of the State Department has really, really accelerated and that 60 percent of uh, or something approaching 60 percent of career foreign service people had resigned during the course or by, by uh, uh, th- this point in the year, uh, that they were now doing buyouts to try to get even more of them, that there are still a host of key offices that have not had appointments made to them. And then as the kind of cherry on top of this whole uh, um, clear policy, the president said, we don't really need them. It's all about me. Uh, and nobody understands this world better than you do. And, and to me, this is an outrage, um, but it's also a national security risk to the United States. And and I thought perhaps you could start us off by talking to us a little bit about why you may or may not agree.
2: Well, thank you, David. And I'm happy to be with you and, uh, Rosa and my good <laughs> friend, Corey and Stanford, um, And thank you for the very kind introduction, way too much pressure. But let me just say this. I started as an intern in the State Department in 1980, so 37 years ago. I was the lowest-ranking person in the U.S. government. I was an intern in New Mauritania, in our embassy there. (laughs) I, I go back that far to the Jimmy Carter administration, and I've never seen morale so low in the career diplomatic service as it is today. And, of course, like like everybody who's worked in the State Department, including everybody on this call, we all have friends. And we hear from our friends constantly. And people are resigning. 60% of our, I think, career ambassadors, data is a data point, are, have, have left since, or have been fired, by the way, summarily fired since January. Um, and the State Department, I think, the, the, the civil and foreign service officers don't feel they're being listened to. The administration is trying to cut their budget by 31%. We're a very small government agency. The total number of American diplomats in the world of all stripes is about 10,000. That's two heavy brigades in the U.S. military. And on top of this huge budget cut that Secretary Tillerson wants to, and and President Trump, want to impose in the State Department, there's been almost a deconstruction of the State Department. Some of our most senior people were just told they were going to leave. They were fired in January and February and March. Others who... Who were given no opportunity to serve resigned on their own accord but we've lost in christy kennedy in victoria newland in tom countryman in pat kennedy you know some of the best people we've trained for 30 and 40 years uh, for the united states and these are nonpartisan people they've served republican as well as democratic administrations no prior administration has suspected that they're partisan because they're not partisan but somehow the Trump team came in and just felt that the State Department wasn't to be trusted. And, and the larger problem here is, and you said you talked about the, the president's trip, when the president went to Asia this, this past 12 days, he did not have uh, an assistant secretary of state for East Asia, which is normally the senior person in the government occupied with that region on a, from a diplomatic perspective on a daily basis, did not have an American ambassador to South Korea did not have an American ambassador to Japan. We're 11 months into the administration. I can't remember any prior administration so unprepared to practice diplomacy because they failed to fill the positions. And my final point, David, would be the larger problem, and you put your finger on it, is that President Trump does not appear to be adaptive. He doesn't appear to have learned in 11 months on the job as commander-in-chief that diplomacy, that he's the chief diplomat and that he needs to have senior people behind him who can help him. And they will help him if given the chance. And when he, when he said to Fox News just before he left on the trip, when, he, when they asked him, why haven't you filled these hundreds of positions in the State Department? Nearly the entire senior leadership is vacant. He said, I'm the only one who counts. I mean, imagine the arrogance and frankly, the ignorance of not understanding that to have diplomatic relations with 194 other states requires people behind you so I think we have a leadership crisis. I know we have a leadership crisis in Washington, from the president on down. But we certainly do in American diplomacy. And it's a sad, it's a sad thing to see because, you know, Americans should take so much pride in this department, which has been a jewel of the government, of the collective knowledge about the economics and politics and culture of other countries, is second to none. And now people are leaving. They're leaving at the junior level, the mid level, and the senior level because they don't see a future, because they're not being respected. So that's my sermon today on the, on the State of the State Department.
0: So can I pile on to Nick's sermon?
1: P- pile, pile on, yeah, absolutely. Uh,
0: so a couple of things. Uh, the first uh, is that uh, you know the figure is getting a lot of attention in the media that 60% of our career senior diplomats have resigned. As Nick points out, that's only three people. Right. So of the so, career
2: ambassadors. We you know they're the, the very ambassadors, highest level excuse me. People. Yeah.
0: So so one thing that is insane about that is there are only three of the only five of them in the entire diplomatic corps. That tells you the magnitude by which we underinvest in American diplomacy. Right? Those are the equivalent of general officers in the American military, and yet we only have five of them, and three of them have been forced out. So so before I go on to the fact that President Trump is decimating the diplomatic corps, the starting point is it's too small. It's under-resourced. We, we ought to grade the effectiveness of the Uh, of the agencies of the American government by how much do they protect and advance our national interests by per dollar or per capita investment. And if you do that, the only people who should, who have the honor of standing ahead of the American diplomatic corps would be the five guys in the department of treasury who figured out how to track money back to Banco Delta Macau, uh, five years ago, right? Like what the American State Department does is hard, dangerous work, and they do it incredibly cost-effectively, and they do it incredibly patriotically, and they deserve to have all of us defending them.
1: Well, I also think, Rosa, that one of the things that's missed sometimes by these kind of out of government types who have these theories about where we're going to cut back and you know what we don't need, and that the State Department is all a bunch of guys and you know top hats and, <laughs> and tails. Uh, which, by the way, it Nick is, it Nick is. is wearing yeah. top hat and tails know, right as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> um, Not quite, David. It's Not just, quite. it's just just the kind <laughs> of David. <guy>.
0: David, the <laughs> error in your logic is thinking that is foreign service-driven and not Kennedy School of Government. Wow,
1: wow. (laughs) Um, It's the
0: plutocrat's redoubt.
2: Oh,
1: (laughs) my gosh. Um, Well, we can come back to that. But but the error, I think, is in thinking, you know, of, of a certain kind of a role, whereas it's actually impossible for the White House and the Defense Department and the intelligence community to actually do their jobs without having embassies and people in embassies communicating. They are part of the neural network of the United States government and so shutting it down is like lobotomizing the United States government. It, it's not replaceable. Isn't that the case?
3: I think that's right and it, it, it always makes me think of one of the real uh, uh, flaws in sort of traditional realist thinking about international relations which holds that it's all about power, that's all that matters um, Because states may care about power and they do care about power. They have to care about power. But states are made up of human beings too. Uh, They're made – you know, big states, small states, little states, powerless states, powerful states are all made up of human beings and – those personal relationships actually can matter enormously. that that the, the people matter too, you know, and the, the people matter because it's people who communicate with other people. It's people who explain things. It's people who interpret things. And sometimes it is just the personal relationships that help grease the skids in all kinds of ways that that people want, you know that in in international diplomacy as in as in junior high school, uh, people want to be helpful to people who are nice to them. They do not want to be helpful to people who who treat them badly. Uh, and having a core of people who are thoughtful, who are knowledgeable about about the particular regions and countries in which they're working, uh, who take the time to get to know the culture and get to know their counterparts that, that you can't you can't sort of quantify the benefits of those things easily. But it sure makes a difference, you know. That, that there are times I think, and I'm sure that Nick has seen many of them in his career. There are times when states will do something that seems irrational, and sometimes it comes down to a bad personal relationship or a failure to communicate. And and other times where they'll do something irrational in terms of their own interests, but that benefits us. And it comes down to a good relationship. It comes down to, to to people having done that hard, painstaking work of talking to each other, you know, and getting to know you know who are the players you know what is the incentive structure within their government you know who are the decision makers and and it's i think it's really tempting to think that you can just shortcut short circuit that and just go around it and that that clearly decision makers will just all they'll see will be power but but they don't i think that's not how humans work and it's not how states work
1: so, Nick, as you were saying, you've been doing this for some time and started out dealing with issues associated with the Barbary Pirates or something to that effect. <laughs> back and, back and, in the, the 1780s. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the 1780s. But, you know, you've seen a lot of growth and development and evolution within the State Department the roles of the State Department. Now, all of a sudden, there is this rapid atrophying of the top and this deep demoralizing state that has set in. And I have to say, everybody I've spoken to at the State Department, I speak to somebody from the State Department almost every week, sometimes many times a week, is saying the morale is the worst it's ever been. And so the question becomes, how long will it take to recover from this if a president wants to recover? how you know What is the lasting consequence of this Seemingly deliberate policy to um, marginalize the United States Department of
2: State. I think it's going to cost us for a long time, David. Um, I, I gave you the example before of a, a, an ambassador named Victoria Newland. She's a very close friend of mine. You know, it took Victoria 25, 30 years to be fully trained in Russian. Language to have the variety of experiences to become our ambassador to NATO and then assistant secretary of state for Europe. She ran our Europe policy for four years under President Obama. She served on Vice President Cheney's national security staff. I mean, it's, it's not uncommon for foreign service, I mean, it's very common, it's universal that we work for both parties. And, and, and Toria is an example of that. You can't, when, when Toria left the foreign service in, in January, because she didn't I – I won't put words in her mouth, but I mean, I don't think that she and others felt there was a future for them in the Trump administration. You can't replace Victoria Nuland in five months. It may take a generation to the next 20, 30 years to produce the next person with that combination of skills, language, area experience. She went through the end of the Cold War. She went through the period of our revival of relations with Russia. She went through 9-11. In fact, we were together in Brussels at NATO on 9-11. And that the next Toria Newland that comes from the Foreign Service, you know, we'll see that person at the highest levels twenty or thirty years from now. But if they're leaving at year five, ten, and fifteen as junior and mid-level officers, then it delays that process, and we have huge gaps ahead in twenty twenty-five, and twenty thirty, and twenty forty for a small government agency that that invests in people over the course of a professional lifetime. I mean, you just can't afford to lose this number of people. And what we haven't talked about today is that is the intake of junior officers. I'm, I'm going to – Corey and I both teach it um, at universities where we're encouraging our graduate students to go into government. Um, and yet the State Department is going to take in about maybe one quarter or one third of uh, the number of people in 2018 that we would normally take in. We're going to see ramifications of that 10, 20, 30 years from now. So – I guess, David, you know, reflecting on this conversation, I think everybody listening to it knows that the United States is the most important global actor in the world. We're the strongest economy, strongest military, the most influential country politically. When we opt out, when we decide, well, we're not going to fully fund our diplomacy, and Corey's made that point about how underfunded we've been, well, we're going to opt out of the climate change agreement and maybe opt out of the Iran nuclear agreement. And we're going to take ourselves out of UNESCO, and we're not going to have join any trade agreement. I fear, you know, following the president's trip to Asia, that we are already being overtaken in global influence, certainly by the Chinese and East Asia. And I worry about our global credibility, and it comes back to underinvesting in people and not believing in diplomacy. And the last thing I'll say is I think the people who understand us best, we diplomats, are the military because we serve with them, we work with them hand in glove. You can't have a successful American foreign policy without the military and diplomacy being intertwined. And um, you remember when Secretary Mattis said, yeah, if, you know, if, you, if, 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 if we don't have diplomats, I need more bullets. He understands the value of diplomacy. So uh, I think we have to reflect upon this as a country. We need attention to it. The president needs to turn around and understand how important this is for him as well as for the country.
1: Again, Corey, for me, it seems to be much larger than even Nick has stated it in the sense that um, it's not just about diplomacy, not just about the size of the State Department, not just about the quality of the people that we've got or the connections that gives us in the world, although those are all profoundly important things. But as, as Nick is also stating, we seem to be reversing direction from the past 75 years of U.S. history in terms of a whole host of international agreements and support for international institutions. And that, in fact, our foreign policy is not a foreign policy, but a kind of an anti-foreign policy, where what we're doing is reducing the State Department, reducing the size of the capacity, reducing the ties that we've got overseas, reducing our ties in international institutions. This is full retreat, uh this is this is a reversal. Uh and there's a tendency to say this in every administration. Oh, Obama's not working hard enough here or Bush has undermined our relations there. But we've never seen anything like this, have we? I turn to you because I think if we have, you'll remember that in 1813, <laughs> right in the middle. <laughs>
0: um so uh, let's see. I can think of one historical precedent for the kind of decimation we have seen, when fifty uh, percent of the officer corps uh, took up arms against the federal government, and and a former secretary of defense became the president of an enemy nation. Uh, but but that was the american civil war right <laughs> and uh, absent that there's not a precedent i can think of for the way president trump is is actively diminishing america in the world in uh, in disassociating us from the values that create america's soft power r- and the receptivity other countries have to what we're actually trying to do in the world, to um, submitting a budget that would not only cut American diplomacy by 31 percent, but that has wildly um, out of uh, wildly out of proportion, but also uh, wildly unreasonable expectations that anyone in the Senate's going to vote for this budget. So he's actually also damaging American defense policy because the budget he submitted, as as Senator Corker said, is dead on arrival. And that means we're going to have another year of sequestration, which is bad for the Department of Defense and our hard power. The president doesn't appear to understand that trade policy is an essential part of cementing alliances and uh, increasing the number of jobs available for Americans. The only place I would disagree with your uh, intemperate criticism of the president, David Rothkoff, is that you wrongly believe he has a strategy As opposed to
3: David shaking his head in denial. I I shake (laughs) my head. No
1: such thing. I shake my head (laughs) in disbelief. How could you impute such a thing to me?
0: (laughs) You made it sound like he has a strategy, as opposed to knee jerk reflexes based on 30 years worth of sustained ignorance on subjects like alliances, trade, and immigration. Where he just willfully refuses to allow knowledge to permeate his understanding.
1: He has no more. See,
0: David, you were intemperate. As opposed to my criticism,
1: <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, right. Yeah, I can see that you're
3: not giving which him credit, though, Corey. He, he has. <laughs> I think, yeah, I'd say he has more like 55 years of it. sustained ignorance. Uh,
1: uh, yeah, she's talking about Trump, by the way. Um, but um, <laughs> yes, just, yes, yes, like, yes, not David. I just wanted to clarify that. But, 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 Rosa. Before I, I, I would want to turn the subject um, uh, uh, with Nick and go back to this this Asia trip, which is now wrapping up. But To me, when I look at it, it's not just anti-foreign policy. When you look at Trump, he doesn't know anything about governance. And in fact, his approach seems to be anti-governance. Because what's happening in the State Department, that's also happening in EPA. It's also happening in Health and Human Services. It's also happening in education. It's also happening with the undermining of morale and, and, and support for the intelligence community. Area after area after area, with the exception of the military, which I don't think he really quite understands what's going on there, but with the exception of the military, in all of these areas, Trump seems to be saying, I don't need the government. I don't need these agencies. I don't need this stuff. Now, maybe there's some searing insight here that we're all missing and that— That uh, you know, there's you know, maybe this is Steve Bannon's attack on the administrative state, but something big is happening, right?
3: No, I think I think it's it's two things coming together. One one is the uh, you know, longstanding uh, uh, Republican. Assertion that the federal government is too big, it's a bureaucracy, it's bloated, it's full of people who sit around and don't do anything. And you know, there are a few people who sit around and don't do anything. But but I, but I think that you know, there's an ideological stance which is basically that smaller government is always better, um, and that we need to trim waste and so on. Um, that's the that's a sort of generous description of it, um, and that's uh, right now. Um, uh, you know it's like what is the I can't remember any of my you know high school physics, but when you know two waves overlap and they create a tsunami right so that's one that's one little wavelet, and it's overlapping with the tsunami that is that is trump uh narcissistic conviction that he is a is a skillful businessman and that he doesn't need anybody else because you know all you need is 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 him and his personal magic uh which will make everything everything work in the world uh, you know and, and so th- those two things are kind of coming together um it's 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 arrogance and its misinformation Obviously, on, on both sides, both of those waves are, are premised on on a good deal of arrogance and misunderstanding. You know, it's it's a big world out there. It's a big, big world. And as Nick said earlier, when you think about the the size and scale of uh, and complexity of the global issues that we're facing, the State Department, you know, it, it, in its best days, is pretty tiny uh, compared to the scale of problems that we're we're facing. Uh, we're not putting you know, even pre-Trump uh in the Obama administration, we're not putting we're not putting as many people against those problems as we should be. Um but but now we're, you know I, I do think it's it's absolutely it's this fantasy that that you know I'll just I'll just look at this problem and I'll just sort it out and I don't need anybody to help me, uh, you know, it rests on a really fallacious uh, understanding of how the world works.
1: We are the deep state. We will triumph. <laughs> Um, but, <laughs> but Nick, we, uh, are, you know, now at the end when this episode airs on Thursday, the president's trip to Asia will be over. Um, give
2: him a grade. Um, I think I'm going to give him, and this is not, I'm just going to cut not a cop out An incomplete. I would say this, it was a tale of two trips, David, for me, at least I actually thought and I am certainly not a supporter of Donald Trump. But I thought on North Korea, which was the dominant issue of the first part of the trip in Japan, South Korea, and China. I thought he did okay. He certainly has Abe with him. He was better with President Moon, whom he had insulted in the past. In his set speech, in uh, set piece speech in Seoul, it was a speech that I think other American leaders before him could have given. Uh, he didn't call anybody names. He set out the policy of extended deterrence. He offered the possibility of negotiations. And I thought actually he was doing well on North Korea. Um, Later in the trip, of course, he got into a name-calling exercise with Kim Jong-un, which is never what the American president should do. And it's self-defeating because I think the Trump administration is trying to head towards some kind of negotiations. At least that's where Rex Tillerson wants to go, so I thought he did okay there.
1: And but when but you were in the State Department, you wouldn't have called him short and fat.
2: <laughs> no, we probably wouldn't a, have no, done that. Those are diplomatic terms of <laughs> art, just, David. Even if we had wanted to, we wouldn't have said the words because you know other countries have for, other countries have pride too, and other right. countries even an authoritarian leader has a variation of internal politics and. You've got to be careful in diplomacy. You, everyone, I think everyone agrees on this, to restrain yourself. But what bothered me about the trip, it's, having now said something dic- nice...
1: Insane dictators have feelings, too.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's well, why they yeah, call it diplomacy. That, if yeah. you want to get that dictator to the table, rather than having some kind of shooting match in the Korean Peninsula, you've got to be a little bit smart about what you say about him, right? I think we'd agree on that. Yes. But I think where, where the president fell down... He was so over the top sycophantic to Xi Jinping, describing their relationship as the apex of all diplomacy in the history of <laughs> dipl- you know, history of international affairs, and not criticizing in any way, shape, or form what the Chinese are doing in the South China Sea, on intellectual property, on human rights, just to name three issues. And I think he had the same problem in the Philippines with President Duterte. He fell over himself to describe all the deals they were going to make together and the beautiful relationship that they had. What our presidents have had to do for the last 100 years, really, when we meet difficult leaders, as particularly authoritarian leaders, is to balance two things. When the president's the guest in Beijing or in Manila, of course you have to be respectful and you have to be polite. But on the other hand, Ronald Reagan and Dwight D. Eisenhower and Harry Truman – and Barack Obama all took the time to make sure that we stood up for our values, that we make clear that we're not comfortable with China becoming an even more authoritarian country as a result of the recent party congress, and certainly to raise issues that are of importance to all of our allies, like the South China Sea and Chinese assertiveness there. So, I think the president just didn't get the balance right in those places. And, and finally, with Russia there's even no semblance of balance. I think the president's probably the only se- senior figure in the United States, in the entire government, who actually doubts that Putin uh, launched a major assault on our electoral process. And then, the, and then by implication, again, to take Putin's side versus the nonpartisan professionals that all of us on this call, on this podcast, have worked with, people in the intelligence community are largely There are hardly any political appointees. They're almost all career civil servants. They serve both parties. And for the president to take Putin's side, a KGB officer's side against our intelligence community, well, you heard what John Brennan and Jim Clapper had to say about that uh, over this past weekend. It's really reprehensible what the president's doing on Russia. So I would give him a failing grade for the trip based on everything I've just said, with the exception of, I thought, a fairly good beginning on North Korea.
1: Well, that's how they grade at Harvard, Corey. How do they grade at Stanford?
0: (laughs) Well, I, funnily enough, just finished grading midterm exams for my thinking about war class. So I am primed to say that the president is a C student for his Asia trip, and that's being extremely generous. And here's why. Uh, yes, he did get the South Korea piece largely right. Um, but uh, the degree of difficulty of getting the South Korea piece largely right, let's be honest, is pretty low. Um, and at I agree with all of Nick's assessments that that um, that the president, Appears to be distracted by shiny objects and large military parades and didn't doesn't actually seem to have accomplished anything in any of the places of this trip, with the with the one exception of the meeting of the Quad, India, Australia, uh, Japan, and the United States. I noticed in today's news clippings that the Trump administration failed to get the South Koreans to agree to participate in the U.S.-Japanese naval exercise that's going on right now, or to agree to participate with the Japanese in a one going on, uh, another one coming up that's not bilateral. So we're not making any progress in getting the South Koreans to be serious enough about the defense of the Korean Peninsula such that they can work with the Japanese, Um, the disgracefulness of the president's uh, trade uh, talks when he was in Asia or comments on trade when he was in Asia. And the disgracefulness of his bilateral meeting with President Duterte and also with the Chinese and also with the North Viet- with the Vietnamese, excuse me, um, being unable to speak the language of American values or human rights, I just don't see what he accomplished. So I give him a C for showing up and for not blowing the South Korean parliamentary speech, but but that's a solid
1: C. Oh, my God. This is what's happened to graduate school grading <laughs> in America, exactly. folks. This is grade inflation. Yeah. You get a C for showing up. Um, let us hear from the associate dean of the Georgetown School of Law. That's you? Yes. Grade.
3: <laughs> oh, you want a grade from me? Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go with uh, D minus, I think.
1: Yeah, that's better.
3: Whoa! <laughs> yeah.
1: Whoa. <laughs> well, do you want to explain it or? No, I, I mean, I mean I think, I think it's obvious I think, on the face. I but. think
3: it's obvious on the face. I would be repeating myself. Uh, I think Corey, Corey, in keeping with her generally kind and loving nature, is being much nicer than I would be.
1: Well, I have to say, I'm going to give myself two votes because I'm usually a professor at Columbia. Because you
3: don't believe in democracy. No, no, then, because like. I'm usually a
1: professor at Columbia, but this year I'm teaching at SICE.
3: Oh, so you definitely get two votes. I That's definitely
1: fair. get two votes, and I'm going to give him an F. Um, oh, I was
3: being nice. I said D minus because he think did show up. The
1: greatest achievements he had were um, showing up and not screwing up um, his – Korea policy for part of the trip. But he did offset that by actually screwing it up later on. Uh, And when you add into it the cozying up to Putin, the attack on foreign soil of leaders (laughs) of the intelligence community, uh, the uh, uh, cozying up to Duterte, uh, the cozying up to Xi Jinping, the failure I mean, the complete flip-flop he did on trade policy with China in China, um, the fact that all the nations of the region took this moment to OK TPP as a kind of big fuck you to the president of the United States, um, that for any other president, you know, we wouldn't give him this one sort of Trump-grade advantage, which is he didn't (laughs) cause a nuclear war. Yay, he didn't cause a nuclear war, so... We're going to give him a passing grade. So I give him an F. So you guys can go and figure that out. Now, there's one other thing I want to address here in the last mm-hmm. remaining five minutes of this. Um, and that is, Nick, I remember the very, very first time we met a long time ago. Uh, all you could talk about, you were with, we were with Tony Lake, actually, at the time. And all you guys right. could talk about were the Boston Red Sox. <laughs> and I've come to realize over Yon. time... Yeah, exactly, <laughs> Corey. I've come to realize that that is code. That meant... I went to Harvard, and that is one of these things that happens no, in Washington. No, no no, no, oh, no, no, I like the Boston Red Sox. You know, that's like,
2: you know, it's I was in I was in Boston for a while, and you know, you know, it's it's. No, I actually, in my case, I actually grew up in Boston, outside of Boston. So um, I've been a lifelong fan of the Sox. I went to Boston College undergrad, Catholic Jesuit there you go. college, not Harvard. So, well, OK, Fine. I'm no, going to so give you, I'm gonna, that, I'm that, gonna give you to claim moral that's, that's superiority. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I just,
1: you know, I just wanted to resolve this. I mean, Corey has this good, <laughs> solid uh, St. Louis Cardinals thing going on. Um, and I grew up near Yankee Stadium. I can't help. I'm sorry, Nick, but I can't well,
2: help. <laughs> oh, Everyone has a failure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I
1: got pl- I got plenty of them, but I am a Patriots <laughs> fan and I was delighted to see them. You know, Great get, getting up to seven night. to two, big victory, and that's a good thing. We never really discuss any of your athletic affiliations. I, I'm a Rosa. Yankees fan, David. I agree.
3: I, as a small child, um I had a whole uh, uh, sort of scrapbook full of Yankees clippings I would cut out. I had a baseball card collection. And my ambition until I was eight was to be the first uh, female pitcher for the New York Yankees. And an ambition is, is a, a planet <laughs> was a shattered ambition. by a little boy named Peter McPartland who told me cruelly that girls could not be major league pitchers. And I was forced to become a law professor, which which I've regretted ever since. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm still a Yankees fan.
1: And I have to say, I'm sure Nick, as a Red Sox fan, would support your becoming a pitcher for the Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm pretty good. I would. I would I could have been a contender.
2: <laughs>
0: well,
1: folks, you know, one it
3: of
0: the- It was the t- baseball card collection that got her a pass on being a Yankees fan.
3: Well, and you know, here's a really sad thing. I had a pretty good baseball card collection. Um, and then when I was 13, I had a crush on a boy named Jay who expressed a passing interest in baseball and I I said oh I, I have a baseball card collection you can have it jay oh, and he God. happily accepted it and vanished and so that was that and I never got it back and <laughs> yeah it's been just one long series of disappointments right
2: rosa did you know that fidel castro actually wrote a letter to the yankees as a teenager asking for a tryout all of history would have, <laughs> would turned. have been so different it would different. have been completely different <laughs> if only. the yankees had had the foresight to draft him me and so, fidel me and fidel
0: Uh, He was never a good enough pitcher to pitch for the Yankees. They should have just warehoused him someplace (laughs) in single A and saved us all the trouble.
2: Exactly, Corey.
1: Well, but there were other turns in history. And of course, the Red Sox did trade that pitcher, Babe Ruth back you in did. the day that did <laughs> we're still paying for it.
0: <laughs> you know David that was such a gratuitous shot by which I mean to say well done. Thank
1: you very much. <laughs> well Nick as you can see we take it things very seriously here in the deep state we're very glad that you could join us for this episode perhaps you will come back and join us again sometime uh Corey, rosa thank you very much for this episode of deep state radio everybody come back next week for our special thanksgiving editions of deep state radio whatever <laughs> i don't know what those will be but you know something delightful and uh, uh we'll see you again then thanks very much Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.